Grow CFO is where finance leaders grow together. Join thousands of like-minded professionals using Grow CFO to access the combined knowledge and experience of the finance leader community. You can join us today at growcfo.net. Hello and welcome to the Grow CFO show. I'm your host, Kevin Appleby, and today I've got with me Dan Perez. And Dan and I are going to talk all about something called observability, which I haven't got a clue what it is. So I hope Dan does a good job of explaining it to me. But Dan, welcome to the Grow CFO Show. Thank you, Kevin. Very excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Dan, tell me a little bit about you before we get into observability. I'm based out of an Arbor Mission. I started my SaaS finance career at a company called Dual Security, then through acquisition, ended up at Cisco, then went into the BI space uh, through another acquisition. And now I'm at a company called Edge Delta, and our focus is on observability. Right. So, observability. What on earth is observability? So, Kevin, have you got any idea what that is? Which rock have you been asleep under? I can explain that very often to my family. And the best way I can think about it, and the way I explain it usually, is if I think of DevOps, SRE teams, or infrastructure teams and organization. What they're looking to do is to measure an application or system's health state based on the data that it generates. Not necessarily going into the application, but looking at the data and say, is this working or not working? So that's a very high level, the way observability works, right? So it offers visibility and awareness to what is happening in the application. So it's not just telling you something's wrong, but it's trying to answer the how, the the where, and the why. And that helps teams react more quickly if there is, for example, downtime. It's usually the biggest example I use. If you have an application with a lot of services that support it and something goes down, you can have a lot of financial implications, customer relations, uh, other downstream implications. So if you have an SLA of, let's say, 99.99%, which is fairly common in SaaS, a customer might be contractually uh, able to end the contract or get some credits or a refund, right? So the quicker you can address that downtime, the less exposure and liability that you have. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. And just the whole idea of observability, it's often the way we spot something that's wrong at Grow CFO. We'll, we'll okay. notice that perhaps we're running a, an event and very few people have turned up for it versus the number of people we think are registered for it. That'll be an alarm bell that says, did the reminder email go out? Exactly. Now that's great. Yeah. And then taking it one step further, so you're saying something's wrong, but it's also trying to give you insight on the why it's wrong and where could it be, right? So to use your analogy of did the email reminder go out, was it something that Gmail or Outlook didn't send? Was it something, a human error? Or was it something else that we actually don't know what it is, right? So it points the person into the right direction so they don't have to look at each one of those steps and just can directly go to where the problem is. Okay. How is the system then figuring that out? Well, there is a lot of different ways. So that's where we have engineers that are very well paid in the infrastructure team to kind of develop a lot of that. So they look at certain anomalies, logs, or traces or metrics, and they can develop logic behind that to say, to oversimplify the work, if this happens, then this. But also, you know, more recently understanding 
is there a systemic issue or trends and patterns that can help you identify which one of those log sources or traces is actually having the issue. So the system is smart enough and the software is smart enough to tell you, I know where all this data is generated and I know which patterns have been generated and send you that way. Okay, this sounds very clever. I remember years ago being involved in a balanced scorecard KPI project. The client was actually the British Army. Very unusual project because all the metrics that we were putting together on the scorecard were very different to the sort of metrics you'd put together anywhere else because the objective is, are we battle ready? The level of equipment, spares, things like that, that we need, should we need to mobilize tomorrow? So we developed as putting that together to work out what the KPIs were going to be, what the performance metrics were going to be. We went into um, systems thinking. Effectively, systems thinking is a bit of a speed draw, huge spider's web diagram. And kind of for any objective, you're putting this together and saying, okay, what are the things that could affect that number? Okay, and you kind of draw a mind map back from the number, which might have been availability of AS19 mobile, how it's a gun. You've got a whole load of things going back, the things that could potentially go wrong to not have that gun available. And then you'd be looking at those and saying, what are the key ones in here? And those would be the metrics you'd stick on the the dashboard. But in doing that, you build this huge cause and effect diagram that effectively you've got a diagram there that if the main measure has gone down, you can, you've almost got a checklist there that you can say, was it this? Was it this? Was it this? So I'm guessing the logic you're putting into observability must be something similar to that. I think at a high level, that's a great corollary, Kevin. There's a lot of complexity that comes in on specific use case to what you're talking as well, right? Military applications, but there's also fintech, there's also supply chain, et cetera. So each one has its own different flavor and the value add is having the right partner, making sure that they're working with you for your specific use case, because it's not one size fits all. So mm-hmm. having good implementation and those services also makes a lot of sense. But the way I always try to think of it is it's not just telling you where, but shortening the troubleshoot time, because that is a very critical time to use the example you have. Like when you identify that problem, a difference of five minutes, two hours, two days can make a huge difference. But yes. military application and in the world that I live in and what we see from our customers is the cost of downtime. So, you know, there's a lot of articles about how much that costs on average is about $9,000 per minute, but you can go really high up and on an enterprise customer. It can be $150,000 a minute. Delta had a huge downtime that cost them roughly $140 million over five hours. So the scale really kind of magnifies as you're going up up segment into the enterprise and larger organizations. Yeah. And that can be really important at, at sometimes over others as well. I guess that if you're in the middle of a big marketing campaign, you've been putting out emails with offers in them. Folk are clicking on the offers. They're coming through the website to buy. Sales cart's down. That is going to cost you revenue straight away. You want that sales cart not to be down. You want it back up as quickly as possible. To get it back yep. up as quickly as possible, first of all, you need to know it's down. So you need exactly. to flag that up. Then why it's down has to be very important to get the thing back online. The 
you mentioned, monetization is a huge aspect of it, right? So users signing up, then you can think of ad revenue. If it's not direct monetization, if you generate revenue through ad revenue, it's another aspect of it. And then, you know, there's a whole security and SecOps implication of it as well, right? That it's a whole other use case as well. There's a lot of applications and it is not a nice to have. It is almost a must have at this point for most SRE and DevOps. I can see that. So you must have to carry a huge amount of data. Yes. Pricing models vary a lot, but it's usually about data, right? And data ingested in and out. And the way I think about it is, you know, our team just released an observability report and I was kind of going through it. And some of the things that really jumped out at me was just the amount of data, to your point. One thing that stood out was over 70% of respondents generated over 500 gigs of data per day. That's how much, how much throughput their systems have. But even when I double-clicked into that, 35% of them have over one terabyte per day. So it's sort of the scale of data that gets generated. And the other part that was interesting, I hadn't thought about this, but it's the growth of that data. Most of the respondents, over 80%, said that their data generation has increased 4x over the last few years. Then 22% said that it increased 10x over the same period. It's not just the amount of data, but the growth of it. And it makes sense as you build your product or have different features or more services, all of those different applications will generate more data. And that's just more data to analyze. So it's looking at what is the right data, which is really hard to figure out when you don't know. So there's a lot of troubleshooting there, but then it's just the cost of that data is I put my FP&A hat when I'm thinking about this and just thinking about it. How would I model that cost? And it doesn't track revenue. It doesn't track headcount. It doesn't really track users. Not quite exponential, but it's a very different growth curve than all the other sort of vendors and services that I have when I'm thinking about my P&L. Mm-hmm. So the core, that's the, the problem I like to think about when I'm thinking about observability. It's not just a short-term cost savings implication and how do I deal with that, but it's building in on a robust long-term. Like, is this scalable for my infrastructure team over three years, over five years? Because that must be your biggest headache. Have we got enough infrastructure to keep this going? It depends on the deployment. So not to get onto the weeds a lot, but you can do on the premises of the customer. It can be purely SaaS or you can use a hybrid model. So just depending on how that deployment, how the customer wants to operate with their data, you have different pricing, cost structures. There's mix and match for all of this. And at the heart of that, it just creates a very complicated pricing model for the end customer. So when somebody is looking at it, kind of thinking back to that report I mentioned before, the majority of our respondents, over 80%, said that we incur overages on a regular basis. And that's why we see a lot of customers. They buy what they think they're going to need, but they incur overages throughout the quarter, throughout the month. And it's really hard to predict. Absolutely. Your background is clearly FP&A. Yes, <laughs> 100%. You've got probably more data swimming around then than the average FP&A person would have. How much use is the sort of data you've got in your systems from an FP&A point of view? It's an incredibly interesting question, and it's something we're working through right now. We're a fairly young company, but we have, to your point, a lot of data. And depending on the services that we're offering to our customers, the different product types, 
we have our own infrastructure costs and our own uh, different services that we use. So at this point, we are prioritizing on what has the biggest impact at the highest cost in understanding pattern behavior recognition to understand where can we optimize the cost, just like most people in, in the macro environment right now. We try to stay away from analysis paralysis is what I would try to say, because we have way too much data at a certain point where we actually can't make sense of all of it. So it's really focusing on specific use cases that have the biggest impact on the business. And that's what we're focused on right now. Brilliant. So you've got, again, all of this data. It's being used for specific purposes, 99% of it not for FBNA purposes. But I know that if I'm talking to FPNA people, one of the biggest things that they will complain about is data quality. All of this data going into the observability algorithms. Data quality, is that a big problem for you? I mean, yes, it, for any data-driven company or any data-driven team, it always is going to be. Like, there's no easy answer. I think at the end of the day, it goes back to what I mentioned earlier, is having the right partner and making sure that what is being imported or what you're analyzing actually has a meaning terms. And that's sort of the trap that I think all functions, not just observability professionals, but everybody you know, from FPNA, kind of garbage in, garbage out problem. So it's understanding where your reliable data is, and then more data is not always better. And that is sort of the sweet spot, because if you want to ingest all the data that all your services are generating. We can do that. It's very expensive. And to your point, how meaningful that is can be questionable. But having the right partner, whether it's FPNA, observability, marketing, et cetera, will help you focus on the meaningful data and the right signals. And that is at the core, the value proposition. So more data isn't necessarily better. The right data and the right reliable data is the important thing here. You mentioned earlier on that you've got some very clever engineers putting together the algorithms and so on. Now, it strikes me that this could be a place that AI is playing. There is an opportunity. I think every vendor in the space is thinking about AI and how to implement it, where there is some concerns is about you know who owns that data. And there's a lot of privacy concerns. So in this space, this is you know very sensitive data for a lot of customers. It's deploying that, in my mind, in a responsible manner. So yes, you can take advantage of this, but at the same time, meet all your contractual obligations, right? And I think that's the crux of a lot of the issues, a lot of the challenges a lot of companies face with AI and privacy concerns, right? It's an aggregate of a lot of data. It's fed to it in this specific space that's, A, is very custom to specific customers, but also there's a big privacy. So the way I think about it is almost running it specifically for each customer and having their own platform custom tailored for them. Definitely an opportunity. It's a lot of effort as well. But there's a balance of yes. Yes. effort versus you know, speed to market. Having been in that position where I've been running a system that's got a lot of sensitive data in, knowing you've got to be absolutely 100% secure, you've got to be absolutely certain you're not sharing personal data with anybody. But once you aggregate it, you don't have that problem. Is there not something here, Dan, that says AI is great at spotting patterns? It's great at learning patterns. Therefore, 
if you're trying to observe what's going on, could you not easily have AI in here learning the pattern of what's normal and then being able to throw out messages that said, pattern doesn't look normal anymore. You better take a look. <laughs> and 100%. I think you're 100% right on, yes, that is the strength of it. The way I think about it is, would I use it or not? brand new product where I don't have a lot of historical data to kind of train it. No. So that still relies on some of that clever logic that we were talking about, something more established, something that's been running for almost a year, et cetera. Uh, then yes, 100%. But there's that balance. It's not a one-size-fits-all. It complements the product offering. Mm. Some way I would think about it. Absolutely. And I can see huge uses for what you're talking about. Just think about your own job, though, in finance. We've touched on AI. Mm-hmm. Are you making big use of AI personally at the moment? Personally, no. I mean, I like to play with it. Go on ChatGTP and kind of check it out and see see what it says. At this point, I've tried different FBA tools. Vendors have approached me and kind of always curious. There's a lot of promises on what it can deliver, but where it is right now, it's not quite fully there yet. But from a potential perspective, Kevin, yes, I think that... There's a huge potential of being able to say, if I'm, again, FPNA hat on, what's the source of this variance? If I have a model that's trained on what my forecast, my budget, my actuals are, and kind of understands that, instead of me having to dig through a GL, I could ask, like, tell me what the variance of this is. That would be huge time savings. It's less headcount that a team would need to get to the same insights when I'm thinking at an enterprise level. When we're at Cisco, that was 99% of the questions we were asked, like, you know, explain all the variances that we're seeing. Those are the applications in the short term that I see as huge time savings for a lot of people. On the long term, I'm curious to see how good a model would be and compare what a human would model versus what an AI would model from a revenue perspective or a total PNL. Inherently, I think humans are actually not great at forecasting, to be completely honest. So when you actually use run rates, you get to a more accurate point in the long term. So that is an experiment I would love to see the end result. I have an inclination on which one would be more accurate. The other day. I think there's a lot of uses. I don't think as of right now we're there yet, but in the long term, yes, there's definitely. I think I'd agree with that. I've used ChatGPT for business purposes, something that's very useful in our world in Grow CFO. When you know what it is you need to write about, you've done the research, you've got a a page full of bullet points. It's rather useful to be able to feed them to a machine that might actually write some text around the bullet points. I've used it to do research into certain things and known when I've looked at the answer that's come back that half the answer it's produced is absolute garbage, completely made up, fiction, not fact. So I think it's going to be very interesting to see where it goes in times to come. I agree with you absolutely. It's very powerful, very interesting, but it's not quite there yet. Agreed. And to your point, right, that's where you get into a little bit of catch-22. If you don't know the subject well, you might take it at face value and then treat it as the truth with completely incorrect information. I think there's a few cases out there. I was reading in the news of lawyers who use chat GPT as support for their case. And ChatGPT, a case up as a backup for basic as yeah. precedent for the yeah. case that we're doing, right? And, and they just took it at face value, and obviously it's a big deal. So 
not using as a source of truth, but to your point, as something that you already researched, it definitely makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I tried using it for something in a hobby space. I was going to write a, an article myself, completely outside of work, and I got GPT to do a bit of research on the subject for me, and it made up the names of half a dozen subject matter experts in this particular. <laughs> the the characters he talked about and what they had done was complete fiction. <laughs> was it believable? I guess is the other okay, question. Very <laughs> believable. Very believable. Now, we've talked about observability, but the company that you're working for is Edge Delta. Tell me a little bit more about Edge Delta as an organization. So we are a Series B company, roughly about 80 employees at the moment, headquartered in Seattle, but we have a very distributed workforce right now. That's a very typical SaaS company from a revenue perspective and a revenue model where the product differentiates itself from established competitors is how it treats observability. Instead of centralizing all the data, it's analyzing it where it's generated. And that provides some benefits from a latency perspective. You get response time a lot faster versus other approaches. So that is a big differentiator. Another way of thinking about it as well is how we treat the data and where it's stored and being very smart at what is the important data versus not as critical so it can be stored areas with higher latency. So those are the approaches that we take. Also understanding pattern recognition and some of the things that we have talked about now as a differentiator for the team. And it's a great team from a culture perspective. Enjoy everybody I work with as much as you enjoy people you work with remotely, sometimes hard because you only see them from the shoulder up. Product is there. The team is great. And yeah, it's very excited about the product. Uh, I usually... Since I was a dual security, really have to believe in the product and what we're trying to solve to get excited to be at work. That's a very important uh, threshold for me whenever I take on a new challenge. So 80 people, you're headquartered in Seattle, but you're in Michigan and looking at the background behind you as we're recording this, it looks as though you're in your own living room at the moment. So how often do you get to Seattle? How does that remotely work? Yeah, I've, so I've worked remotely for almost three years, four years now. As far as travel, in my role, usually once or twice per quarter, I'll make a trip to Seattle. Less these days, probably a little bit more towards the end of the year, our board meetings, that's usually becomes a little bit higher uh, travel rate. And overall, it's, it goes back to culture and having sort of norms and rules that you follow. Everybody understands that DMs or Slack is the primary form of communication. There's folks who know that I'm available via phone if they need me, email as well. So highly collaborative and then understanding priorities. So being very clear on what's a priority and what needs to be action ASAP versus, you know, it can wait next day, a week, et cetera. So very over-communicating is almost a requirement if you're going to have a highly dispersed and I actually recorded a few weeks ago a, a podcast that was, was completely about hybrid working. The mm-hmm. CFO of AppFire, and he was in New York, had his finance team all over the United States and some of them across in Europe. And we were talking about the various issues of doing that. He really likes it, thinks it works very well. But 
he impressed on me that there's got to be somehow a social side of that built in. People not just getting on Zoom calls to talk about the work problem, follow the agenda of the meeting. So how do you tackle that particular one with the team at Edge Delta? A hundred percent agree that statement, Kevin. It can it cannot just be you know, this a meeting about the work and product. Like people will burn out. It's not an enjoyable experience for anybody. A couple of ways at Edge Delta specifically, but even in prior companies, we have localized pods of employees, just kind of referrals or people that are in the same geography. So making a deliberate point of those people getting together in person every so often. It doesn't have to be anything work-related. It can just be lunch or dinner or some sort of activity like that, as well as having a company-wide events once a year. That's one thing that we put a lot of focus on. We did it earlier this year. We're planning on doing it next year, bringing the whole team together. I mean, we're not just based in the U.S. We have Turkey in the U.K., Denmark, etc. So there's uh, quite a broad geographical... Only 80 people, but a big geographical spread. Exactly. So it's just making sure that everybody feels engaged. But the flip side of that is also being aware of where they are. And I think just respecting that work-life balance. If somebody's in Turkey, I don't want to be sending messages in the middle of the night for them, whether they have their phone getting there, right? So just being very deliberate about the priority of what I'm sending and just really understanding the human aspect of it. That's probably the biggest priority across the board. So that's one way of tackling is having some in-person meetings, but also having a very deliberate team that, although doing virtual get-togethers can be hard, just making sure that those are still available if people want to ask questions or make sure they feel empowered to ask those difficult questions that you might just have, you know, the water cooler or whatever other setting in the office, right? Like, oh, I have a question about our ARR or I have a question about this. Just having office hours where people can just feel free. Being very open as much as you can be is another big aspect that I think plays very positively for the culture. Yeah. But moving from a a huge organization like Cisco to 80 people at Edge Delta, that must be a big, big change for you personally. It was very different. I like to joke. I took it in steps. I went from 80 about 200 and now I'm at 80, right? <laughs> From company size in that journey, but it's very different. The one thing I would focus is that the company's a lot smaller, but the amount of interactions I have on a daily basis is about the same. Yeah. I'm still talking to our head of engineering and our head of sales and our head of marketing on a daily basis, right? Like that, that just happens naturally. Uh, and that's going to be the same for people in roles, whether it's Cisco or whether it's Edge Delta or any other startup, right? So from an amount of interactions, it's not that different, right? You just have a lot more visibility to product marketing and all the other parts of the organization just by nature of being a smaller team. So Edge Delta, sounds like you've got a really good young company. Sounds like you've got a great product and a great culture. But who are you out there competing against? Who are the more longstanding people in your marketplace? That's a great question. So the longstanding competitors that you think of the space are the data dogs of the world, the Splunks of the world. That's sort of the established vendors. And then there's all the sort of more younger companies that are coming up on different ways of approaching the same problem. So that's how I think of the market. And there's a lot of different use cases, right? It's not one size fit all. You can think of DevOps and SREs, security use case, infrastructure, et cetera. Each one sort of has their niche depending on 
Now, a lot of different factors, but th- that is how I think about the market. You know, the company, like every company in this environment, you know, there's macro pressures, there is competitive pressures. So uh, we face the same problems that everybody does from a commercial standpoint. I suppose this is true in, in any market these days. If you have a number of use cases and you're a small company, but you can prove yourself that you're better than anybody else at one or two specific use cases, you're going to make a business. Whereas the big data players from years gone by can probably say, oh, yeah, we can do everything. Yes, they'll have a solution for everything, but it won't necessarily be a perfect fit for any of the things they do. 100%. I think that's another great observation, Kevin. How I think about it is for infrastructure products that are a lot more technical, it's also the quality of the implementation in that use case, right? So one size fits all doesn't really work. Like you said, for all. So having that niche ICP that you identify that you can really chase after is an advantage, right? And then eventually, once you want to scale, you have to do what all the big players did, which is diversify your product offering. With that in mind, you're there at the moment, a young company, 80 employees. What does the future look like for Edge Delta in, say, three years' time? What's your level of ambition? I think any SaaS startup will say the same thing, which is uh, continue to grow with an objective of an IPO exit. Uh, and along that way, we'll figure out whether the market is there for the product we're building. Do we have to use the, you know, the cliche pivot word uh, on the product? Uh, that is the long-term ambition. And I think that's what every, not every founder, but most founders, when you're thinking about a SaaS startup, are looking for. The current macro and the current market is you know, it's tough for a lot of startups, for a lot of companies. So we're well-established to continue that growth based on where we are right now. And you're just seeing how the market reacts. Do we need to invest more or be very capital conscious? That's sort of the decision that's always on our mind. That's certainly been the, the, the story I've heard repeatedly across 2023 is capital isn't as freely available as it used to be. You've got to be very careful with your runways if you haven't got to the point that you're generating revenue. And you need to be careful to start going through that fundraising process sooner rather than later, because it will take longer than it used to. Everybody is more risk averse than they used to be. I just heard that time and time again, either from CFOs going through the process or people on the other side of the fence that own the funds. No, 100%. I think that's what we've seen in the market just from peers, other companies that are in a similar stage. The process is going to take a lot longer. There's going to be a lot more scrutiny, uh, specifically on performance, financials, sort of capital efficiency, to your point. So that is top of mind for everybody. And we went from a grow at all costs mindset to a how quickly can you become cash flow positive? For example, I know people who just raised series A and C, where the next question was, how quickly can you be profitable after this race? We have to have that conversation. I'm not sure that that's in the cards just yet, but that is sort of the mindset of a lot of folks, to your point. Yeah, absolutely. Well, looks like there's an interesting future ahead for both uh, Dan Perez and Edge Delta. Looks as though you landed on your feet in a fantastic company, Dan. Thank you hugely for being this week's guest on the Grow CFO Show. Thank you, Kevin. Really appreciate you having me and uh, have a wonderful day.